One in three teens in the United States is a victim of abuse by a dating partner. One in three teens. I want you to think about that because we often think about adults being victims of violence and abuse, but we don't think about teens. Today's guest will talk to us about the incidents and the signs of dating violence among teens and perhaps some things that we can think about. Uh, hello, everyone. I'm Pamela Brewer, welcoming you to this edition of Mind Talk, and I'm happy to introduce you to today's guest, Dr. Alicia Ignatius Brereton. She is the co-founder of Collective Capacity Consulting. Dr. Brereton, welcome to Mind Talk. Thank you so much for having me, Dr. Brewer. I'm excited to be here today. Very quickly, tell us a little bit about Collective Capacity Consulting. What does that mean? Sure. Um, yeah. So m my business partner and I developed the uh, organization as a way to support um, nonprofits, community groups, community organizers in um, thinking about and integrating programming and program evaluation in their work. So uh, the goal is to work with lots of different um social justice organization specifically. Uh, right now we're doing a lot of work with sexual assault and domestic violence organizations. Um, and yes, yeah, so in addition to some research and evaluation work, we also um, provide support um, in organizational management and development and fiscal management for, for small nonprofits needing that kind of support and training. So it sounds like you do a little bit of everything. It sure is. Yes, that's exactly right. Okay, and, so and I think the goal, the goal is really just to build that capacity among nonprofits. We all have like a passion to do all kinds of different work. And sometimes we just need that additional skill building and support to take it to the next level. Well, I'm glad you took time out of your 32-hour day to talk to us. Um, <laughs> clearly, you got a lot going on, it sounds like, all day, every day. But l let's go back to the, uh, to the statistics that I shared just a moment ago. One in three teens in the United States. Is that an accurate statistic in your view? Absolutely. Um, and what we find is that that statistic, it not only bears out across the, across the spectrum, when we really look more deeply at um, specific groups of people, um, whether it be if we're looking at LGBTQ youth or we're looking at um, youth of color, those statistics get... Uh, those statistics get slightly worse, and the, the reason behind some of that is there's less supports, less information, and, less, and just a less opportunity for, um, for folks to, to get the support that they need when things do happen. So, yeah. All right, so one in three is bad enough, but you're saying that young folks of color or LGBTQ youth, it's happening even more than one in three? It could potentially be. So what we see a lot is like one in three, when we see, think about that statistic, it really is about who is reporting. Right. And what we know is in those particular communities, 
the reporting is less than, and we're still seeing those numbers. So the expectation is that it's actually even worse. And you have said that violent behavior within the dating relationship typically begins between 12 and 18. I want to think I misheard you. You didn't say 12, did you? I I did say 12. So one of the things that we, um, when we talk to young people, that we know is that they are dating earlier than adults think they are. And we have this assumption that, a 12-year-old has, has knows nothing about what it means to be in a dating relationship. Um, and in fact, by the age of 12, they've already had their first uh, boyfriend or girlfriend or partner or whatever they're calling them these days. <laughs> and they've already come into contact with this, these kinds of relationship dynamics. And they're experiencing violence. And it might be because those 12-year-olds are experiencing some of that in the home and it might not be it's a time when young people are are they're experimenting they're learning about themselves and they're learning about what it means to be in the world and in relationship with others and it's a tricky time so yeah 12 so when you talk about 12 year olds who were dating I mean, that really means that they just call each other boyfriend and girlfriend or whatever, and they talk on the phone, and maybe they hold hands in the hallway at school. That's all that means, right? It's not like dating, dating. Well, yeah. So they're not necessarily, you know, going out to the movies together, or they might be, or they might be going over to each other's homes. Um, But it is, it's dating in the sense that it is an intimate relationship with another person. Um, It is somebody that you're spending a whole lot of time with that you're um, letting get to know you more so than anybody else. Um, And they're, they have a, um, an opportunity to know you in a, in a deeper way. And at, yes, at 12, those deeper relationships are developing and it's not, you know, it's, Again, one of the things when we talk to young people that we like to talk, we like to bring up when we talk to adults is that they they constantly say adults say that it's puppy love or it's you know it's it's not that serious oh isn't it cute but for them it's incredibly serious and it's it takes up a huge part of their life a huge part of their time and it's serious for them. What are some of the signs, if there are any observable signs, that a child is in an abusive relationship? Mm. That's a really good question. Um, It can look very different for different people. Um, The things that I like to tell people to look for is are they being are they withdrawing? Are they isolated? Is this the only person that they're engaging with? Um, are they uh, really touchy about when you bring up uh, how things are going? Uh, are they you know people like to talk about the the kind of risky behaviors engaging in risky behaviors or they they might be using drugs or alcohol, et cetera. But really it's about paying attention to the person and are they 
are you seeing them engaging in the world in a way um, that you would expect of a 12-year-old? And if they're not something, or anybody for that matter, or a teenager, um, if they're not, it doesn't hurt to, to, to ask and to see how things are going. The idea for a parent that uh, a 12-year-old, 13, 14-year-old is engaging in behavior, um, engaging in a relationship, for, for some folks is sort of daunting enough. But when you start looking at how parents very often see their their young uh, children, they may see the kinds of changes that you've described as simply going through a phase uh, you know, that's my kid, he's a preteen, you know, she just turned a teen, and this is kind of what they do. We're going to take a break right now, but when we come back, I'd, I'd like you to help us understand how to look at the signs, and can you determine if this is ordinary adolescent stuff, or if there's a crime that's being committed. We're going to mm -hmm. take a break. We'll be right back, folks. Dr. Brereton, again, is there a way for a parent to observe his or her child and know that this is just adolescent stuff or that there's something more significant going on? That's a great question. And I'm going to just reframe it just a bit okay. and, um, and say it's really not about observing your ch child, but figuring out how to build that relationship so you get to know them as an individual. So a lot of the things that, um, a lot of the questions I've answered from parents over the years has been, you know, how do I talk to my child about X or how do I know my child is going through X? And really it, it can't be waiting for that crisis to happen. You should be talking to your child about, what it means to be in a healthy relationship long before you think they're in one or they should be in one. You should be, you know, talking about relationships in the context of friendships as, as little as they can have those quick two minute conversations. Um, I, you know, I have a nine year old boy and I spend, you know, every chance and every opportunity I get to kind of, take something that he might be talking about. He might be talking about video game that he's playing with his friends and using that one minute block where he, I actually have his attention to just find out something new about him and then kind of insert something around healthy relationships that, that allows me to get to build that trust so that I, hopefully the hope is that later on, I don't have to spend too much time digging, but I have actually gotten to know him in that, in that way. Um, so what I would say is really there's no surefire way to, 
sit around if you, you know, you have a 15-year-old and kind of observe the behaviors and decide whether or not. It really is about just continuing to talk to them, continuing to let them know that you're a resource and let them come to you. You know, we're talking about um, teens and, and the potential experience of, of dating violence. I, I think about that, and, and, you know, the reality is that a large majority of adults do not report when they've been in a violent situation, and, and you've already stated that many teens don't. So I, I think about the, uh, the Dr. Christine Blasey Ford, uh, versus mm. now Supreme Court Justice Kavanaugh and the impact mm -hmm. of her telling and how she was treated on teens. I know the impact on adults because I've heard it in my office, but what is your sense of the impact of that whole, I don't know what to call it, um, what do you, what Fiasco. would you call that? <laughs> Fiasco, oh, that's God. a good word. Uh, you know, I was struggling, to, I was struggling to find a word. What's your sense of the impact of that fiasco on young girls or young boys seeing how those, whatever they were, went forward? So I can say a lot of the young people that I've encountered and, you know, I, I spend a lot of time with young people of color in particular. And one of the takeaways really is that, oh my gosh, if this successful white professor can be treated this way, who am I? Right. And they take that very seriously. Um, young people are a lot smarter than you, than we think. And it's incredibly traumatic in, in the same way that it was for adult survivors. It's traumatic for adult, for young survivors as well. It's not safe. It doesn't feel safe. The world feels dangerous for them. And so, you know, that is definitely something that's come up in the conversations with the young people. But what I, I the other part of that is, and this, I, for me, the saddest part is that they weren't surprised by it, right? It was, none of this was a shock to them. This is, they are used to um, issues around sexual violence not being taken seriously. And the popular boys or, the, or what have you getting away with it. That's a very sad commentary on the world yeah. in which we live, I would suggest. Absolutely. It, it absolutely is. And it's heartbreaking, um, really, when you, see, when you see the lack of, uh, the lack of shock, right? The, yeah. the utter, like, I, I knew that was going to happen. Yeah. This was a, this. It's, it's a sad indictment of where we are, absolutely. In the event that a child does report to his or her parents, um, do the, mm. and, and the abuser is, is another adolescent, does the parent have any recourse? What do you, what do you suggest that parents do? Gosh, a really good question. The first thing, 
I always say is make sure before you've done anything is ask your child what they want. Um, I think a lot of parents kind of skip that step because they're, they hear it and they want to fix it automatically. And sometimes the fix is actually just listening to find out what your child wants done and take their lead. Um, and if they say like they do want, they do want justice or they want this person to be, um, to be held accountable or however they might say it, there are lots of ways you can support your, your team um, to do that work, whether it's going and talking to um, a counselor at school or, you know, going and talking to a principal um, or schools might have Title IX officers that may be helpful in making those kinds of school reports outside of the school. Teen dating violence is very much a crime. So it is, students can go or young people can go and make criminal reports, right? They can report to the police and have it investigated. One of the things, um, uh, my previous organization, Break the Cycle, spends a lot of time talking about is uh, cyber abuse and the, the fact that a lot of um, dating violence that we are seeing now where can be tracked through how social media or um, technology in general is being used to control the partner, right? So those are, kinds of, those are the kinds of things um, if young people have a track record of showing text messages that are um, particularly controlling or abusive, or if there's kind of been uh, social media messages um, that are being shown, those are the kinds of things that would be really helpful in taking it to that next step and, and making that final report um, to law enforcement. So when we're talking about teens and dating abuse, we're including physical assault, sexual assault, and cyber assault, cyber abuse, cyber stalking. Is that correct? Yes. So the, the way I like to talk about it is that cyber abuse is one tool of, of what's happening in the world. If it's happening... If you can track it online, chances are it's happening with people face to face, right? So um, if, you, if your child or a young person is in a relationship, they are necessarily at this point, it's 2018, they're Snapchatting or they're Instagramming. Um, so there are, there's information that you can find there in addition to the fact that they are seeing each other face to face. So when I explain it, it's like cyber abuse is in the middle of this larger bubble of sexual violence, physical violence, emotional violence, all the stuff that we've, we're used to talking about. Cyber abuse is really just a tool to do all of those things. What about sexting? What are your thoughts about mm -hmm. that? What do you say to parents about that? <laughs> Great question. Uh, I, the example I give is with sexting, 
before technology, you were in a relationship, an intimate relationship with your, uh, with whoever, and you might have given them a naked picture and that they hung in their locker or some kind of sexy in, in picture. It's the impetus that, that's the, is the same. It is sharing kind of this intimate piece of yourself with somebody that you think that you can trust. That's what sexting is about. And so I start there because I want to not start from the perspective of sexting is bad. Don't do it. It's dangerous. You're going to get there. Your picture is going to be all over and that's, why would you ever do that? But it's from the perspective of this is the impetus. Now, how can we support young people in thinking about the fact that because of technology, the repercussions are potentially disastrous for young people um, because of how fast um, things like naked pictures can be shared across the internet. It makes the risk that much higher and talking about that risk with young people is incredibly important, but also recognizing that the where it's coming from is is absolutely normal and has been around as long as humans have been around. So rather than saying, how, how could you be so stupid? Um, mm-hmm. Saying instead, I, I kind of get this. I mean, I understand how this could happen, but let's look at how this could affect you short term and long term. Exactly, exactly. And if you're coming from that place, it it also reads truer and less hypocritical on the path of adults talking to young people. We're going to take a break. When we come back, what I'd like to know more about from you is what parents can do when it comes to the issue of cyber abuse and cyber cyber stalking. Um, but, but, but before we go there, I just very quickly like to ask you, is there anything schools can do about this? Oh gosh, schools can um, definitely partner with local um, either sexual violence or domestic violence, dating violence organizations. Lots of them do prevention work around um, dating, dating abuse or sexual abuse, and they include a really big um, cyber abuse component. So I would suggest that every school look, look in their community and see who is doing that work and partner. Terrific. All right. We're going to take a break, and when we come back, we will continue with Dr. Alicia Ignatius Brereton, who is the co-founder of Collective Capacity Consulting. We will continue the conversation about violence among teens. Dr. Brereton, we hear more and more um, 
as we have conversations about cyber abuse um, and cyber stalking, we hear more and more about people recording and posting sexual assault. In the instance where the assault occurs between, well, usually it's between people who know each other. We, we got that. But if it's a situation where a partner has all but demanded nude photos of the person and the person wants to remain popular, wants to keep the boyfriend or the girlfriend, so they send them and then they're assaulted, what happens? Are they believed? Are they not believed? So the question is when, if a person has, has given their, the picture to their intimate partner and they've spread it around they've spread it they've spread the picture around but then they have at some point actually assaulted their partner ah okay and then they turn back to the picture and say well how could i have raped this person look what look what was sent to me voluntarily even if it wasn't voluntary it was sent that's a great question and the answer is um it's it's all in that you know back to the our conversation about uh, Dr. Blasey Ford. It's the any opportunity for um, dismissing the claims of a sexual assault survivor. Um, all kinds of things come up when they when they decide to finally disclose that they've been. Uh, sexually assaulted and this is no different Uh, they are just like any other sexual assault survivor this is one of those opportunities to use something against them right and it can absolutely be used as a uh, an opportunity to say see they are already this kind of person they are promiscuous they are this young young person and they this this, how could this possibly be real they've they've gone ahead and given this person this picture and so there's no sexual assault here and it's just again for me it's another tool that people have used to discredit uh survivors from coming forward so it is, it's an uphill battle. Um, I don't necessarily think it's, um, it's any different than any other um, ways that people have used um, actions, past actions of a survivor to discredit what, what they are saying about their experience. And it is one of those incredibly re-traumatizing ones because then you've got this person's picture plastered plastered everywhere and they not only have to hear people's judgments and see people's judgments, but they have to see themselves and people commenting and um, making judgments based on this, this actual physical picture of them. They are, they're exposed because of the judgment, because of the sexual assault and they're also physically they're exposed. If there are persons, and I imagine there are, who want to know more about what you're wanting, what you're doing, or, or wanting just to get more information from you, where do they go to find you? Awesome. So my website is collectivecapacity.org. Uh, that's collectivecapacity.org. Um, 
and can definitely reach me. There's a contact way to contact me there. There's also, and my email is just uh, Alicia, A-L-E-S-H-A at collectivecapacity.org as well. Terrific. And I'd be happy to talk to, with anybody that wants to reach out and learn more. Terrific. Thank you very much. You have a standing return invitation. I hope you will take me up on it. <laughs> and again, awesome. Dr. Alicia Ignatius Brereton, thank you so much for joining us today. Thank you so much for having me. My pleasure. And folks, thank you for joining us today on this edition of Mind Talk, which is brought to you daily as an educational public service and is not intended to replace any work that you might choose to do with a medical, mental health, or other professional. Mind Talk is produced by Jim Brown and 26 by 2 Communications. We are available on demand by going to mynndtalk.org. That's M-Y-N. D-T-A-L-K.org. You can download uh, any conversation on demand. You can also sign up for free weekly gifts or the program guide. There are lots of things to look at and listen to at the mindtalk.org website. If you'd like to be in touch with me directly, that's P-A-M-E-L-A at mindtalk.org. And folks, you remember always, if it's unacceptable, it's unacceptable. You take care. Thank you.